many of our adversaries are going to be equipped with nuclear weapons. Um, we do not want to set the precedent that should you have a nuclear weapon, we will allow you to invade another country, annex parts of it, and not respond or have a muted response simply because you have a nuclear weapon. That opens ourselves up for a far greater and far more dangerous environment to begin with. Hello, and welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, the entirely student-run podcast at Johns Hopkins University. My name is Julia Ahn, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Leo Kamer. A year into Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Russia has failed to accomplish its original goals and is struggling to retain its current territorial gains. In fact, Vladimir Putin has warned multiple times of nuclear weapons use in Ukraine over the past year. In this episode, we discuss the likelihood of nuclear weapons use given Russia's military doctrine and the current state of the war, how Ukraine and its allies ought to respond to Putin's threats, and the potential risks of pushing for a diplomatic end to the war too soon. Joining us today on the podcast is Dr. Raphael Cohen. Dr. Raphael Cohen is the director of the Strategy and Doctrine Program of RAND Project Air Force and a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation. He works on a broad range of defense and foreign policy issues, including defense strategy and force planning, Middle East and European security, and civil-military relations. Cohen previously held research fellowships at the Brookings Institution, the American Enterprise Institute, and the National Defense University's Center for Complex Operations. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Dr. Cohen, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. So almost a year into the invasion, um, Russia has struggled to annex Ukraine or even retain a lot of its current territorial gains. And now there are more and more concerns that Russia might resort to nuclear weapons use. Can you, first of all, give us a summary of what Putin and maybe also the Russian military have said or indicated about their willingness to use nuclear weapons since the invasion? Sure. So since the very beginning of the invasion, uh, Putin in particular has always made sort of veiled references to Russian nuclear uh, prowess, um, threatening some sort of uh, still undefined uh, retaliation, particularly should uh, NATO and the United States in particular intervene in the conflict. Um, Now, there's a question of whether or not he'll actually make good on these threats, but this is a tactic that Russia has continuously resorted to whenever it feels that uh, the conflict uh, is not headed its, in its uh, favor. And so, you know, these uh, these nuclear threats, well, they, they raise a, a lot of questions about Russian capabilities and, and intent. And I was wondering if we could talk about the, the Russian nuclear arsenal before discussing Russia's nuclear strategy. What is the structure of the Russian nuclear arsenal, as it were? How many warheads does Russia possess and, and so on? Sure. So um, Russia has a robust nuclear deterrent. Um, it has a uh, full-fledged triad. That means uh, air-launched um, uh, nuclear weapons, as well as intercontinental ballistic missiles, uh, and then uh, nuclear missiles that you can launch off of submarines. In terms of number of warheads, you're talking in the thousands. Um, I'll decline to give you exact numbers. Uh, if you're interested, uh, you can look at the Bulletin for, of Atomic Scientists for you know what the stated numbers are. And in addition to all those strategic warheads, those are the 
uh, large nuclear weapons. Uh, there are also tactical nuclear uh, weapons as well. Now, it's important to think to understand what a tactical nuclear weapon is. Many of these warheads, despite the fact that they are considerably smaller in terms of detonation capability than a uh, strategic nuclear warhead, they still rank on order of the atomic bomb that we dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki during World War II. So they're not tactical or precise in quite the same way we think about precision munitions uh, in a traditional American air, air campaign, for instance. And so, uh, talking about sort of like strategic versus tactical nuclear weapon, nuclear weapons, could you go into a little more on how each fits into a, a, a nuclear strategy or a nuclear force? Yeah. So the point of a, a strategic nuclear deterrent is really to deter uh, an existential threat to the country. So the idea being that. Uh, we, Russia, or we, the United States, don't want to see um, our country destroyed. And therefore, we have a means of striking out and causing irreparable damage uh, should uh, we ever be threatened by a nuclear attack directly. Uh, that's the idea of having a secure second strike capability. What we mean by that is even if our adversary strikes first it's, and causes nuclear damage or nuclear attack on your country, you still have the ability to respond in kind. And, that, and the idea to that is that that would create some sort of deterrent effect and you will never use these strategic nuclear warheads. Now, in addition to that, you have these tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, again, these are not small weapons. Uh, they still have immense amounts of destructive power. But the idea for that would be that you can use them either as a signaling device uh, to show that we're serious, or alternatively to try to achieve some sort of more limited aim uh, on the battlefield. So speaking more on Russia's military doctrine, I know even before the invasion of Ukraine, there's already been um, speculation about what exactly is um, its nuclear doctrine. How are the use of nuclear weapons outlined in um, Russia's mil military doctrine or defense? Sure. So uh, Russia knows that it has an immense conventional inferiority towards the United States and to the NATO alliance at large. It can't hope to prevail in a strictly conventional war. So uh, Russia in turn has decided to rely on its nuclear deterrent as its sort of trump card to prevent uh, the United States or NATO from intervening or from getting embroiled into sort of a more conventional conflict. The terminology that Russia tends to throw around or that you tend to see discussed in the open press is the concept of escalate to de-escalate. The logic here is that Russia would employ nuclear weapons such as that that would in turn deter the United States and NATO uh, from force or conflict. The idea being that as soon as one of these nuclear weapons detonates, everyone would back off um, saying, oh, well, the Russians are big and scary and therefore we don't want to go down this, uh, go down this path. And so that's, that's the basic logic that they've uh, discussed. And I guess going from that, I want to discuss a little bit more about um, the past couple months and how Putin has um, made threats in those past couple months of 
explicitly using those nuclear weapons. Now, I know a lot of our listeners, including myself, have will remember that um, when nuclear weapons were first being developed, that we had generally thought that rational decision makers won't risk nuclear war. And now I know I myself have read a lot of articles in recent months with analysts analyzing, well, what might be the cause of Putin's threats? Is it his mental state or is it just in the historical context of what happened with the Soviet Union that it's natural for um, Putin to resort to nuclear weapons if necessary? What do you make of these potential explanations to explain what Putin's actions and threats have been in the past couple of months? So I think it's important to sort of pulse the actual use of nuclear weapons and the threats of nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Uh, Putin has certainly made several threats, um, done so routinely over the last year, in a sort of failed attempt to try to get the United States and NATO to stop aiding Ukraine. He notably has not actually engaged in nuclear warfare, though. I mean, he hasn't used these weapons to date. And there may be several reasons for that. Um, I think you can make a fairly good case that using nuclear weapons in this case would actually be counterproductive um, for a variety of reasons. First off, when any time a nuclear weapon detonates, you don't necessarily know where the fallout is going to um, lead. So the the nuclear fallout could blow back on Russian forces. Uh, Given the damage done to uh, Russian conventional capability already, it's not necessarily clear that Russia could exploit uh, the tactical advantage that you might gain from detonating a nuclear weapon. Uh, Ukraine not may choose that, you know, even if Russia does go down the nuclear path, that it really has no other choice but to fight. Um, and for, conversely, you might very well assume that from, particularly from the uh, standpoint of NATO members, particularly those on uh, Russia's border, they might view that as an existential threat to themselves as well. Um, you know, particularly if you're in uh, the Baltic countries, or in Poland, or Romania, uh, the threat of Russian nuclear warfare is quite real, and so it's unlikely that they would necessarily back down. The United States and other countries have already promised, uh, still undescribed, uh, retaliation. Uh, and even if all of this was to work in Russia's favor, uh, you know, you still Russia would still be left with a dramatically changed security environment after this conflict ended, and it means that a lot of their countries in the near abroad would be looking to acquire their own nuclear weapons, if only to deter Russia in the future. So there's a host of reasons why a rational actor, um, if Putin is a rational actor, he would not choose to employ nuclear weapons. Now, Russia uh, and Putin in particular have made plenty of poor choices uh, over the last year. So, you know, you can't necessarily guarantee that Russia would choose not to use these weapons, but at least from a sort of pure rational calculus, it's not a priori clear that they would actually choose him to go down this path, even if they do use, uh, rely on these nuclear threats fairly continuously. Are are you suggesting then that Putin's threats are perhaps empty, that there is uh, it's that it's all bluster, and that the the nuclear threat is is not um, is not as grave as as many have uh, suggested that it is. I wouldn't say that. Um, I think it's not necessarily bluster, um, and it's not something that you can take lightly. Anytime a you hear a 
major world leader who has several thousand nuclear weapons under his uh, direct control makes these kinds of statements, you have to take it seriously. I think what you do have to uh, take, uh, sort of be sort of very careful about is, you know, to to fully analyze the strategic picture from Russia's standpoint. And from that standpoint, it's not a priori clear to me that this would be a strategic gain for employing these nuclear weapons. You know, from a American standpoint, you have to prepare for the what if, if Russia decides to does go down this path. But at the same time, I think you have to also appreciate the strategic conundrum that Russia might face if they choose to uh, use said weapons. Or the reason or more accurately, the reasons why they may not choose to employ them, even if they do want to uh, use go use these threats fairly continuously. Mm-hmm. And so you know so sure these uh, these threats should not be taken lightly simply because of the the existential danger posed by by nuclear weapons. I was wondering if there is a is if there is a um a world in which you know Russia would use a nuclear weapon or what are the conditions that that would lead Putin or the Russian military to to consider the use of nuclear weapons a good idea perhaps well look if the uh, regime was under existential threat um, if the United States or another country employed nuclear weapons, I think any country would retaliate inclined. Um, if you know the United States or NATO decided to invade uh, Russian territory, and by that I mean not not the currently seized portions of Ukraine, then I think it would be a different uh, scenario. Um, that's not the situation where we're in right now. The situation we're in right now is a fairly intense battle for an occupied piece of Ukraine. Um, so, and I think it's important to distinguish between the two. And has Ukraine and its allies altered at all, either the strategy or, you know, the aid that's been brought to Ukraine because of the threats from Putin in the past couple of months? Yes, um, I think particularly early on in the conflict, uh, the United States and many of our European partners uh, were particularly reticent to give the Ukrainians certain kinds of weapons uh, for fear out of nuclear retaliation. I think as the conflict has drawn on, I think we've gotten, grown more comfortable with uh, Russia's red lines or um, the boundaries of how this conflict is going to play out. And if and all somewhat more risk acceptant um, in terms of what aid we provide them, but that still I think factors into our calculus of uh, you know what whether or not we give Ukraine uh, the ability to strike Russian territory, for instance. Um, that always sort of factors in the back of the mind. And on that note, I know you yourself have written um, previously about how the West ought not allow fear fear of potential nuclear weapons use um, to drive its strategy. And you know, feel free to expand on that if I didn't capture the whole picture of your argument. Um, so how should we respond to these threats? I know you said that they're you know, not completely empty, so we ought to take them seriously. So what is the best strategy exactly? Is it just to ignore them or what should we be doing? Well, I wouldn't say you ignore them. I think from 
the Department of Defense's standpoint, you need to prepare for the worst case scenario at all cases. And this applies to Russia, but it applies to other strategic circumstances as well. Uh, so in other words, you have to prepare for the possibility that should Russia ever employ a nuclear weapon, you need to be prepared to do so. And there's a variety of reason, ways that you need to go about doing that. Everything from how do you prepare to fight in a nuclear battlefield to what kind of medical treatment you need to give to the survivors of the attack to potential retaliatory options uh, for Russia's employment of nuclear weapons. All of that sort of planning is happening in the background. But in addition to that, I think it's important not to uh, cave in to Russia's nuclear threats. And there's a variety of reasons for that. Uh, first off, I think it's on just on a, the moral basis the wrong thing to do. Uh, you don't want to uh, reward this kind of behavior. I think it also sets a very dangerous precedent. Um, the United States is entering a world where Many of our adversaries are going to be equipped with nuclear weapons. Um, we do not want to set the precedent that should you have a nuclear weapon, we will allow you to invade another country, annex parts of it, and not respond or have a muted response simply because you have a nuclear weapon. That opens ourselves up for a far greater and far more dangerous environment to, to begin with. So. That's a long way of saying, yes, you need to prepare for nuclear, potential Russian nuclear use, but no, you should not change your strategy or change your support to Ukraine simply because we're afraid that Russia might employ nuclear weapons. Yeah. So we have this um, military doctrinal preparation in terms of like, oh, what will we do in a nuclear battlefield or, or something else like that, for example. Um, but what about the what would the the general response look like if Russia news used nuclear weapons? We have the statement of, of catastrophic consequences that the U.S. and its allies have, have promised. But do we know what exactly these consequences would look like? We don't. Um, it certainly hasn't been made public. But it's important to know that the United States and its European allies have a variety of measures that we could potentially take. Uh, in response. So um, everything from what we currently have about several hundred billion in Russian assets that are frozen but not seized, so you could potentially seize them. On That's on sort of the low end of the spectrum, all the way up to some sort of conventional military response to Russia's use of nuclear weapons. Now, which of those options President Biden uh, and other world leaders chooses to employ, I think, depends partly on how Russia uses these weapons um, and the circumstances. Um, but we have certainly have a variety of different retaliatory measures in our back pocket. And can you go into a little more detail as to how certain Russian uses of nuclear weapons would elicit or could elicit different responses from the West? Yeah, I mean, so I, I think there's a variety of different factors that are going to get be weighed uh, in response. I think it's one thing if Russia decides to use a nuclear weapon as simply as a demonstration, i.e. it conducts a nuclear weapons test on its own soil where it sets off a nuclear weapon, but it doesn't actually uh, 
kill anyone or cause any real damage. It's a different type of scenario, on the other hand, if it, Russia decides to use a nuclear weapon against a major population center um, with a lot of civilian casualties. I think you would see a very different uh, U.S. and uh, NATO response to the former rather than the latter. And, and on, on the flip side of things, how might uh, – or how are, excuse me, Russia's allies and other countries that are amiable to Russia like China re- responding to these nuclear threats? So particularly for China, I don't think it's partic- – um, it is stated as much that it is, does not want to see nuclear weapons used. And there are a variety of good reasons for that. Um, first – China has a variety of different interests, economic, political, and the like. None of those will be solved by Russia's employment of nuclear weapons. Um, Russia, I mean, Russia's war in Ukraine, um, you know, has some positive consequences for China. It allows China to get an access to sort of cheap natural resources. But China has been notably uh, fairly restrained on what kind of support it provides. Uh, Russia in general, and that's for good reason. It's this war really does not serve China's best interest, and I think if Russia goes down the nuclear path, there would be even more pressure on China to dist- further distance itself from Russia's actions. And before we move on, Doctor Cohen, I know some one factor that has been somewhat vague um, to our listeners and maybe to also to the general public is what exactly Russia's use of nuclear weapons is most likely going to look like? Will it most likely go, is it more likely going to be something that would happen in Ukraine? Or I've also heard um, this pop out that perhaps they're more likely to use it on a NATO ally, or they might use multiple weapons at the same time. Could you give us some clarity about what the more likely scenario would be in such a circumstance? I don't know, to be honest. Um, no, I mean, look, this is, you know, the only person who knows this is Vladimir Putin, and it's not clear that he, even he knows. Um, mm-hmm. It's not clear that he's committed to uh, going down this option. My guess is Russia, like the United States, plans for multiple different contingencies and therefore has multiple different ways it could use said weapons. I think if Russia decides to use a nuclear weapon on a NATO ad, on a a NATO country that's committing itself pretty clearly to a large-scale war with the NATO alliance. Uh, that is mm-hmm. um, that is certainly much more escalatory than, again, setting off a nuclear weapon as a demonstration somewhere in Russia as, as a quote-unquote test, but also as a strategic signal. Um, you know, a attack inside Ukraine is somewhere in between that. So I think it depends a little bit on the signal that Putin wants to send uh, and Putin's risk acceptance. Um, you know, the higher that, the higher his risk acceptance, the more aggressive his actions are going to be. And you also already talked a little bit about the fact that we definitely need to comp- to prepare on our end for the different contingencies of nuclear weapons use. Could you, I know, again, it's probably very difficult, but could you give us a little bit more specifics about how the U.S. and its allies should prepare in the following months or might already be preparing? And also another question is, 
should it should one of its goals be about lowering the nuclear threat or if it's so unlikely that Russia is going to use weapons or nuclear weapons um, right now, should it be more focused on another area? Well, let me take the, that latter question. Um, the question is, you know, again, I think in the ideal world, you'd want to lower the risk of a nuclear threat from Russia. I mean, I don't think any policymaker, be it in Washington or in Europe or anywhere else in the world, is particularly enthusiastic with having a the first nuclear conflict since World War II. Um, if, even under the best case scenario, this is going to be extraordinarily destructive. The question really becomes is like, what do you do and what are you willing to risk to lower that nuclear threat? And this is, thus far, Russia has shown little to no willingness to negotiate um, in any sort of serious way, other than, well, if you give us what we want, we will back off and, you know, mm-hmm. not uh, not pursue this conflict any further, which is not really negotiation. That's the request for capitulation. And if that's what it takes to um, placate the Russians and lower the nuclear threat, that's not a pass I particularly think the United States should go down uh, for a host of reasons. Um, you know, both what that signal sends to the Ukrainians, what it sends to other adversaries, and what it sends to sends to the Russians. Um, obviously, if there was a other options to sort of reduce the nuclear threat, then of course we would like to do so. But um, you know, depends on what uh, what exactly are in those cards. Right, and following up on that, I know as the war has continued and will continue. We've had a lot of people in government positions in the U.S. and abroad, um, key allies calling for a diplomatic end to a war, to the war, um, similar to what you just described um, just now. And I also know that you and another, a lot of other experts have also not only called for caution when approaching diplomacy with Russia, but perhaps pausing that approach right now because it might not be the time. Could you give us a little bit, um, or could you give our listeners a little bit more background of this perspective and maybe tell us when, if at all, we should begin diplomatic negotiations? Sure. So I think it's important to first recognize that the only people pushing for negotiations happen to be a fairly small segment of the Washington foreign policy establishment and a handful of other think tanks and like in Europe. Importantly, this is not a push coming either from the Russians or the Ukrainians, and they're the ones doing the fighting. So ultimately, if you want to end a conflict through negotiation, it ultimately has to be the people who are fighting rather than people on the sidelines engaging in said negotiations. Second, it's not clear to me that there is a deal to be struck. And the reason for that is from the Ukrainian side, they want their country back. Uh, they want Russia to pay reparations for the damage it's done. And uh, they want uh, Russia to uh, uh, face uh, the uh, some sort of criminal just uh, criminal uh, prosecutions for Russian war crimes. None of those contingencies uh, has or anywhere in the cards from Russian calculus. They have annexed four provinces of Ukraine, and so therefore they aren't 
showing any sign that they're willing to give back Ukrainian territory. In fact, they claim it now as part of Russia. They don't have the money to pay reparations, uh, thanks in part to sanctions. And uh, opening themselves up to an international tribunal to look into Russian war crimes only guarantees that potentially the Kremlin and Osako can end up in The Hague, and so they're not particularly interested in that. So there's, there's no trade space here uh, for negotiation. So it's not like there's a deal to be had that, um, you know, had uh, any of us, you know, could magically get both sides to sit down to that they would both, that they would agree to. Beyond all of that, by pushing for negotiations, I think you send a series of bad signals. You're signaling to the Ukrainians that we may abandon them. You're signaling to the Russians that they could wait us out. Um, and if they keep uh, fighting on, eventually the United States will lose interest and walk away. And it's telling all other adversaries in the world that, you know, the United, yes, the United States will fight for a little while and put up a good show, but eventually we'll forget about it. Um, none of those are, are messages that I particularly want to send. So for all those reasons, I don't think it's a particularly good idea to engage in negotiations now. Now, for when you might want to pursue negotiations later, I think one of two things have to happen. Either the Russians need to come to some sort of serious agreement that this war has been nothing but a disaster for them and then and therefore want to engage in good faith about how they can extricate themselves from the conflict, which means that they give back the territory that they conquered. Or alternatively, that the Ukrainians decide that uh, the cost that they're playing in blood and treasure simply isn't worth continuing the conflict and therefore they want to bring the conflict to a close. In which case, if being that the Ukrainians are the ones paying for the conflict in blood, you know, we, we should support um, our partners in that score. Neither of those preconditions presently exist, and therefore, I don't think uh, negotiations is the correct path to go down. Thank you so much for coming on. This is a very informative episode, Dr. Cohen. Yeah, um, it's, uh, it's my pleasure, and uh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.